Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Punnett Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor. And on this week's episode, we are going to assess some of the bold prognostications that I myself made on this very program last week regarding the British election, which was impending at that time. It was it was coming very soon. It has come. It has gone. The results are no surprise to anyone. A lot of hot takes have circulated over the past several days. It is a tragic, catastrophic result for the Labor Party in many senses. It dashes the hope of the Corbinites in the coming years to remake that society. However, uh, we should remember that the victories over the past couple of years are but a brief blip in the long-term vision, history, legacy of, of left labor politics. We are used to losing, folks. And if you are new to the left, toughen up. Stiffen up that spine. Uh, stiffen up the upper lip. Uh, toughen up the spine. I'm not sure what it is. Hopefully my guest today can sort me out. Joining me on the program today is Callum Kent. He is the author of Writing for Deliveroo, Resistance in the New Economy. That came out from Polity Press in 2019. He is also a trade union organizer and wears a lot of hats. So we're going to talk to him all about that. Callum, thanks for coming on the program to sort me out. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So as we talked about extensively off air, you and I came to the left at around the same time. We have about a decade on the, the left proper, uh, you and I. And during that time, we faced a lot of defeat. We had some victories. The Occupy moment, some of the student uprisings that you were a part of that I'd like to you to talk about here and in, in introducing yourself here in a moment. But this this past two years has been uh, something of a digression from the norm. We are used to losing and we are used to facing challenges. And it will be good, I think, in a sense, for this generation of leftists to learn how to lose so that we can win better in the future. What were your initial impressions from the election? I made some bold prognostications on this very program. And, you know, in the moment, you just have to be optimistic, right? Mm. You know, you mm. may have a knot in your stomach. You may feel like, oh, I don't know how this is going to go, but... The week of the election, it's just, it's just go time, baby. You just gotta, you know, you gotta hold your head up and you gotta, you know, you gotta, you gotta be loud and you gotta be proud and you say, we're going to win this thing. We're going to go out there. We're going to, we're going to be victorious and you let the chips fall where they may and the chips yeah. have fallen. It's time to sort of assess things. What were your inclinations leading up to that election? Yeah. Well, I mean, the chips have fallen pretty hard. So obviously it's a devastating result. I think that when we saw that exit poll come out, it was worse than even the worst case scenario I had in my head. And it's a profound defeat. There's no way of, of getting around that. But you've got to understand the election campaign really was a remarkable movement in some ways. And I think a lot of the optimism, a lot of the energy that people probably could see from the outside, and certainly we felt on the inside, came from the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of people around the country working for a Labour victory. I mean, I think despite the result, we can say that this was one of the most aggressive, one of the best organised, one of the best resourced kind of left-wing Labour campaigns in, in a very long time. We were talking about, there's a, a website, mycampaignmap.com, which Momentum were using to kind of try and direct people to campaigning events in target marginals. There was 170,000 unique users on that site. So that's, you know, that gives you an impression of the size and scale of the movement we were talking about and fighting for a radical manifesto fighting for, you know, things like free broadband, right? Talking about the universal provision of like basic access to the internet, like the meaningful decommodification of whole areas that are currently just open to the market. And so we all felt, I think, this sense of being part of a wonderful movement, part of being, you know, fighting for what we believed for. And we really made a go of it. But 
yes, it was a, a crushing defeat, a very difficult last few days yeah, in which yeah. a lot of people, I mean, the beautiful thing is people have just been reaching out to each other, making sure that everyone's okay. And actually the demotivation is not half as bad as you would expect it to be. Uh, the depression is certainly um, not really set in. I think people are still trying to understand what happened and then also plan the way ahead. So yes, a, a disaster in some senses. And, you know, we've lost five years to fight against climate change. We've lost five years to start undoing the damage austerity has done to this country. But also an opportunity for us to go forward from here. Right. I think, you know, in a sense, I'm trying not to draw too stark parallels between the United States context following the election of Trump in 2016 to today in, in your British context, but it's hard not to. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I, as, as well as many of my listeners, if, if you are, if they are so inclined at the time um, and not on the wagon or off the wagon or whichever one it is, uh, quite likely, you know, like me, we drank ourselves stupid for a couple of days. Certainly that night and the day after, just sort of wondering what the hell happened and how, you know, we we sacrificed this uh, this neoliberal centrist uh, stuffed shirt for someone who even at that, especially at that time, seemed even more scary of a, of a figure than he is uh, than he turned out to be today. Uh, he seemed to have a much more coherent, even quasi fascistic right wing populist agenda. Of course, he has since discarded those types of people in his administration who could have enacted something far more terrifying people like steve bannon and so on and so forth and he turned into a quite workaday right-wing neoliberal causing enormous havoc but not quite as scary as we had thought one of the takes that i've seen circulating around the hard brexit crowd and we'll, we'll get to this in just a moment it's unavoidable is that boris johnson is promising to fund services in the midlands he's promising to fund the nhs He's really turned around this kind of Tory austerity, and and that was why Labour was unable to defeat him at the doorstep. He's essentially stole the show from the triangulationists, the Blairites, the people who have just promised to offer just enough to fight back against the Tory austerity, but certainly not full funding, certainly not full democracy, certainly not full the full uh, offering of goods. What do you? What kind of government do you, do you see forthcoming from Boris Johnson, I guess, is, is, is my question. Is he going to carry out the grotesque of austerian kind of logic of, of Tory of the past Tory couple of decades, or will we see something different from him? Well, it's, I think, difficult to tell at this stage. For me, there were a couple of really interesting moments in the campaign where we saw some indication about this. The first was the release of the manifesto. Now, if you actually look at the Tory manifesto, there's really not very much in it, right? Um, and this tells you a lot about how they wanted to run the campaign. It's like basically not substantively talking about any key issues. Um, but, you know, the, the headline policies are kind of things like we want to spend two billion pounds on fixing potholes across Britain. Like we're going to have this like investment in literal road infrastructure. And that was a headline policy. Right. He didn't mm-hmm. have a policy on adult social care. Right. We've got an aging population. We've got a lot of people uh, in poverty in their pensionable age. And they just didn't have a policy on it, which, of course, compared to 2017, Theresa May had this like dementia tax policy that was immensely unpopular. So Boris Johnson just contrasted that by having no policy whatsoever. So there's a degree to which this is kind of an unknown factor. Um, they promised £20 billion to the NHS, whether that will actually come in, whether that will do any more than just try and patch up some of the holes since 2010. It's very hard to say. And I think we really have to see whether they do continue with a kind of austerian logic or almost go back to a kind of uh, socially conservative Keynesianism. I think both options are on the table and it will take a while to find out which is which. The one thing I am certain of is that this is going to be an authoritarian government in certain quite upsetting ways, really. So 
one important thing to notice, and it was barely a fact in the campaign in terms of media coverage, I think this tells you something about how craven our media were um, throughout. There was a whole raft of new policies promised to crack down on a specific ethnic minority. So the Conservative Manifesto contained a lot of policy by the standards of the manifesto, a lot of detailed policy about how the Conservatives were going to crack down on travellers, right? On on, mm-hmm. on people mm-hmm. who move from place to place to the point of like, we will take away their property. Like we will literally take their homes from them if they park up somewhere they're not meant to be parked, right? And this plays on a long-standing, very British form of racism. Uh, often in kind of rural areas, there's a deep antagonism with traveller communities. But that, you know, that was borderline promising the taking property away from a specific ethnic minority. And then similarly, there were other promises about extremism. So a lot of think tanks which are around the Tory party have increasingly been doing work to classify the climate movement, people like Extinction Rebellion, as extremists. Um, And a lot of the kind of the policy in this Roy Manifesto is nebulously about we're going to crack down on extremism. They've also said they're going to basically make strikes on transport impossible. So they've said that there's gonna they're gonna bring in a law um, in the Queen's speech on Thursday, which means that basically during a transport strike, a minimum service has to run. So that mm-hmm. means that one of the biggest, most powerful industrial unions in the country, the RMT, Rail Maritime Transport Union, will now be faced by basically its strikes being made impossible. So there's a really hard core to this, as there was a hard core to Thatcherism, where it's about cracking down on opponents of the state, cracking down on ethnic minorities, and promising kind of a law and order agenda combined with this, you know, putative turn to the left on NHS funding and some aspects of public funding, and then a hard nationalist agenda um, in terms of the international politics. Now, I think that is, you know, that could either be held true to or that could be abandoned. But there are certainly dangerous tendencies within this Tory government. And it remains to be seen what happens, whether this is, you know, it will all blow over style Trumpism or whether there is something more serious here. But certainly Boris Johnson had absolutely no compulsion um, running a campaign which reached out to people who'd historically been well to the right of the Tory party, which brought the Brexit party almost into the party as this kind of subsidiary force to shore up all their defensive seats. Um, and, you know, it was, it was a really uh, disinformation fueled campaign. I mean, I hate to use the term fake news, but it's fascinating to look at some of the initial reporting on uh, the Tory social media advertising. That shows that 88% of the Tory social media advertising contained lies. Basically, this this campaign has been won on a overwhelming air war, where a compliant media and a deeply aggressive set of attack lines from the Tories and their kind of billionaire backers have really wiped away the, the democratic norms of Britain. Uh, so, I'm not one to kind of panic here. I don't think all is lost, but we certainly there will be a bedding in period where we'll have to see to what degree this government follows through on its potential premise as a right authoritarian government. Certainly, I'm afraid to say that this has more in common with like Bolsonaro than Blair. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's important for us to start here. And, and, and in a sense, you know, we're nearly 15 minutes into our conversation. We, we've barely mentioned Brexit. We've barely, we've barely mentioned <laughs> we'll, we'll the Midlands. We'll get there. Don't worry. We'll, we'll certainly get, get there. We've barely mentioned the Midlands and the, and the change in, you know, the, the demographics of, of the Labour coalition. Uh, but I think it's important for us to start here to talk about what comes next and, and what the prospects are for the present, because that will set the stage for the resistance that follows. And it, this this sort of uh, hard uh, internal authoritarian core of the neoliberal project that Boris Johnson will certainly perpetuate can do one of two things. It can, it can break the resolve of the class, 
or can, you know, stiffen the contradictions wherein, you know, suddenly the RMT is not just going out on strike. Suddenly the RMT is resisting police who are trying to force them yeah. to work. Uh, and, and you're seeing this in the United States where the, the stiffening of these contradictions, I hate to, to sound like a, you know, a, a hardcore voluntarist Leninist here, but uh, it's really forcing a confrontation with the state apparatus in, in a more stark on more stark terms. What do you think will come of this over the next couple of years in the immediate term while we sort of recoup and re reassess and, and, and reconfigure our strategies? In the meantime, there are a lot of very angry, very proud, very organized, very militant trade unionists who are not going to take this lying down. What do you make of these contradictions that are being stiffened all around us? Um, well, I mean, there are worse things to be in a crisis than a bit of a Leninist. Uh, I think that's basically my sure. position on this. Uh, you could say um, Leninism was was uh, crafted. It was honed in crisis, right? It, Leninism and, and crisis go hand in hand. I don't mean to denigrate it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, certainly, I think we are in a very interesting situation where actually the response, I mean, we talked earlier about how a lot of kind of young cadre, a lot of people who came into the movement around 2017 have only ever really known this period of like temporary success. And their experience of politics is like they did one election campaign where out of nowhere, we came really, really close actually to forming a government in 2017. And after that kind of incendiary campaign, that insurgent campaign that was so exciting, that was so full of energy, they've, they've, like dive straight into the politics. They've read the ideas, they've read the books, and um, they've turned up at events where they can talk to other people. They've been preparing for government. They might have gone to their local labor meetings, but they've never actually gone through the experience that some of the people who really make up the heart of Corbynism um, have gone through, which is a profound, long experience of defeat and isolation where you really have to rely on yourself and the people around you to fight against, uh, in many cases, the state. So, I mean, if you actually talk about where did Corbynism come from, a lot of the people that I know who are now involved in projects like Navarra Media, who are involved in organisations like Momentum, who are now in you know the Labour HQ, they come from that period of student politics that kind of came out of 2010 and the initial wave of austerity, where without the support of a left-leaning Labour Party, I mean, Ed Miliband, bless his soul, he had a good dad, but he was not left-leaning when in power. Um, <laughs> we kind of ended up having to fight the state. And so a lot of the experience of, of that period was you know getting batoned by cops or whatever without the expectation of anyone coming to save you and that kind of political experience is, teaches a lot and i think so now a lot of these young cater are going to go through that period of like we're going to have to fight to defend the right to strike you know basic democratic freedoms are going to be at stake and they will then be asked can you go on a picket line can you oppose the police trying to force through this van through this line right um, and that will be a very interesting period in, in terms of what develops and what i've seen initially is a very promising sign that a lot of these people involved in this movement are not giving up now. You know, they, they haven't resigned themselves to complete failure. They are definitely committed. And the movement is currently trying to work out, you know, what happened, what happened with Brexit, what happened with the Red Wall, what happened with Labour's coalition, but also what can we do going forwards? And I think there's an emerging consensus that what we really have to do is organise the working class, organise the base, because at the moment, Corbynism has been top heavy. Right. We've conquered kind of the Labour Party faster than we've built the base to implement our politics. Um, so that period of reflection is, is going to continue certainly for a couple of weeks and there'll be a lot of hot takes and a lot of hot air. But also, I think really a movement that is at quite a high stage of maturity learning from this experience. And, you know, if you go back to 
there's that um do you know the 18 uh, i think it's 1895 there's the engels quote in the introduction to marx's uh, class struggle in france where he talks about universal suffrage as like it allows us to count our numbers and to make sure that you know we have an awareness of where we're at he's talking about the advance yeah. of the german social democratic party and that moment of reflection really is important and i think in you know the sense that engels means there at the moment, we are taking stock of where we are in the UK and we are taking stock of like what advances we still have to make, where we're weak and where we're strong. I love that. Not only the the Engels poll being the uh, the Marx nerd that I am in my audience, <laughs> uh, we are here as well. That that was well taken, but it's it's a good, uh, it's a nice historical, it, it provides some comfort, right? To know that there's yeah. a precedent here for historical defeat and reassessment and then reemergence on the scene. I mean, it's, there's no doubt that, you know, Corbynism is not going anywhere. So before we talk about what did happen, there's some breaking news about what will happen more immediately. We're seeing Rebecca Long Bailey floated as a very likely leader at this point. All other challengers have seemingly stepped aside for now. What do you make of Long Bailey and what kind of transition will this entail? How much of the 27 Manifesto will we see? you know, being inherited by this next leadership? What will be the composition of the Labour Party going forward? And how do we maneuver ourselves? How do you and your activists, cadres, maneuver yourselves in the coming weeks and, and months in order to ensure that the real core of Corbynism isn't lost? That seems to me to be the most urgent task before us. Um, there are a lot of, there's a lot of energy being expelled about you know, the, the things we're going to spend the second half of the show talking about, about what the fuck just happened. But to me, the more pressing matter is what will be happening in the coming weeks, because plans have already been laid out by our enemies, <laughs> yeah, both inside yeah. and, outside, and, and outside the party. And, and we need to have plans of our own. What are some of those plans that you've been discussing with your comrades and that you've heard about? So, I mean, I don't want to be too much of a Labour nerd, but it's important for listeners to understand that there's a group of MPs within the Labour Party called the Socialist Campaign Group. And this is basically, it's like a caucus within the Labour Party for, you know, the real left. Um, and, you know, Corbyn, Abbott, McDonald, they're all part of that socialist campaign group. And Rebecca Long-Bailey will be the candidate from the socialist campaign group for the next leadership. So she is going to be the left candidate. Angela Rayner, it appears, is probably going to agree to stand uh, for deputy. So she's currently education minister. Um, and she's slightly to the right of Rebecca Long-Bailey, but is is good is a good um, leader, a good communicator. So I think that now the left, whatever shades of left, are broadly uniting around Rebecca Long-Bailey as the candidate. Um, and that's a very positive sign to see because I think the, the only thing that really would have uh, destroyed the project would be if the left was divided and decided that we were all going to support different candidates um, in the, the coming election. So that unity, I think, is really positive. Um, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion necessarily. There are still... Um, people like Keir Starmer might be running, Jess Phillips will be running. There will be opposition and it will be important for us to win this fight and not assume it's already won. But I think the base of the party is not going to change its politics and Rebecca Long-Bailey will be the candidate that can continue to represent um, kind of our base seriously and a continuity of the project. Just to understand who she is a bit, I mean, she was heavily involved in a lot of the Green New Deal stuff. Um, she's been really involved in kind of Labour's environmental policies and has a good relationship with kind of grassroots organizations like um for instance labor for a green new deal so she's she's very much um not just notionally left wing but also participating and kind of cooperating with the left and the party at the grassroots as well so i mean i'm very pleased that it's looking like she'll be the candidate and i think it will be 
um, hopefully a secure transition and that the party will stay in the hands of the left. Um, I think the, the only opportunity for real disaster is, as I said, multiple candidates and the whole thing gets, for want of a better word, fucked up. But I don't think that's going to be the case. So I'm very optimistic about that. Um, and I, I think that control of the party will then allow us to undergo this longer process of analysis and rebuilding. One of the concerning things I've seen about Rebecca Long Bailey is this is the way it's been refracted in, into the press, in the press, which of course could be complete uh, bollocks, as you guys like to say, which is one of my favorite. Uh, bollocks, bollocks. Bo- bo- bollocks. By, <laughs> I cannot, you know, I, that's the best I can do, Callum. <laughs> uh, I thought you were saying bullocks, like male bulls. Oh, yeah. bo- bo- bollocks. Yeah. Or, you know, it's, it's the accent that's, that's, that's uh, <laughs> betraying me right now. They said he, I probably sound uh, like more like John Wayne to you guys than than uh, you know I don't know anyway. Rebecca Long Bailey appears to be, or at least the press is hell bent on making it seem as though she is appearing to equivocate around the anti-Semitism charges that were so disastrous for Jeremy Corbyn. And I don't know if that's the case, and I don't know if that's smart politics. It may very well be smart politics. We saw AOC doing that. At times months ago, when her comrade in arms, Representative Ilhan Omar, was facing a number of smears around the anti-Semitism charge for her support of Palestinian settlements and so on and so forth. We saw AOC appearing to equivocate around those issues, but in reality, just trying to essentially live to fight another day, make peace with her constituents who were hardcore opponents of Ilhan Omar. And again, you know, live to fight another day. That's a broader discussion. It's another episode unto itself, another debate unto itself about how strident our democratic socialist politicians should be when it comes to incredibly unpopular (laughs) social movementist issues. Should they fall on their own sword, for example, in order to support BDS? I would much rather have a a politician who will vote in favor of uh, a humane foreign policy for Palestinians than a politician who is no longer electable because they are so strident in their militancy about BDS. That's my own take. Others have a different one and you may have your own, but what do you make of Rebecca Long Bailey's willingness to kind of reach across the aisle and to appear to be a much more, um, less problematic version of Jeremy Corbyn? What does that bode for the future? Well, I mean, the anti-Semitism issue has been a remarkable one, uh, not in a good way. I think that it's really troubling, actually, for, for people on the left, because um, certainly there have been problems with anti-Semitism amongst Labour's base. It's a mass party. It has half a million members. There are you know, certain people who have been politicised through YouTube conspiracy theories and then uh, joined the Labour Party who will spout um, a lot of crap, uh, a lot of distressing yeah. crap, and the party hasn't always dealt with it perfectly. Um, in fact, there were, you know, there were early on failures in disciplinary policy um, to do with the way that you know, staffing was switching around as control of the party was switching around. But I think that Rebecca Long Bailey's willingness to admit that, you know, it's it's very hard when you go and um, talk to to Jewish people and and they express a fear that the Labour Party is a racist party. It's deeply distressing, and they're not doing so inauthentically. I believe they're wrong, um, and I think that it's our job as activists to prove to them that they're wrong, to prove to them that the Labour Party is the um, party of anti-racism that Jeremy Corbyn was a lifelong anti-racist and I believe Rebecca Long Bailey is as well. And that we, you know, there is no negative implications for the Jewish community of the Labour Party succeeding in Britain. But that's a longer term project. And to be honest with you, I think that they will smear whoever becomes the next leader of the Labour Party. But insofar as people can be media operators who are relatively invulnerable from it, 
Long Bailey just doesn't have the kind of history that Corbyn does. You know, Corbyn got in huge amounts of trouble because he talked to both sides during the troubles, right? He talked to Sinn Féin and he, you know, was attempting to broker a solution to the conflict uh, and received much credit for it at the time. But then in retrospect, is then kind of slandered as a, as a terrorist sympathiser. And those slanders were remarkably effective in this election campaign. But that won't be an issue for Long Bailey because she doesn't have the experience on the left that Corbyn does. You know, she hasn't been around for, you know, donkey's years. So I think that there will be a a process where the, the press does everything they can to try and find attack lines on whoever the new leader is. But I, I believe that she's probably going to be a good enough communicator to to get around those and deal with serious issues where there are serious issues. Let's get to that now. You, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn's unpopularity with certain segments of the society. You know, people who were on the doorstep over the past weeks have told stories of you know being in the, the quote Midlands, the mythical Midlands, just like the the Rust Belt in the U.S. It's going to be the topic of academic conferences and and hot course, takes yeah. <laughs> for, for months and years and years to come. Steal yourself, comrade. You're going to be you're going to be in the shit here uh, for for a long time about. Uh, wither the Midlands and this and that. And what is what would what would Jacques Derrida say about the the Midlands? <laughs> and what, is dif- what, what does Difference tell us about the the will to power of the the lost white working class of the Midlands? Whatever the fuck, right? You're gonna this. We're gonna be we're gonna be awash in this stuff for a very long time. But people on the doorstep in those places recounted stories of of people just kind of uh, sort of not so much invoking the name of Jeremy Corbyn as but is sort of spitting it out of their mouths yeah, and, and not really having any coherent and clear reason why. Just yeah. He's a bad guy. He's one of those bad, shady characters. He's not for us. He's for them. Them being, you know, uh, invoking some kind of uh, quasi-implicit or explicit racist kind of uh, nationalistic appeal. And you, you pointed to one of the major ones was his support for brokering that peace deal for those who were old enough to remember it, which is not probably coincidental that the large anti-Corbyn segment in the voting blocks uh, were were older. They were the people who were old enough to remember that. What were some of the factors that led to his tremendously unpopular leadership going into this election? Because that has been, according to exit polls and opinion polls, the disdain with the leadership of the Labour Party was one of the leading factors here. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting one because I think that the dislike of Jeremy Corbyn undoubtedly was much more widespread this election than it was in 2017, but it almost entirely operated as kind of a cipher for other concerns, right? So when I was out on the doorstep, I had people describe Jeremy Corbyn as a Nazi sympathiser to me because they had believed the amount of crap that was coming out of um, our mainstream media. But other people would just say they disliked Corbyn because they, you know, had a certain position on Brexit or whatever. So, so this often people were expressing concerns about Corbyn and then through that saying other things, right? So it just became one way of saying, I am broadly concerned with like the legitimacy of a Corbyn government. And I think this is really like the core of it is that particularly the attacks that were made. I mean, you probably won't have seen this stuff, but anyone who's been a social media user in Britain over the course of the election will have been bombarded with these adverts about um, what Corbyn was going to do, how he was going to give the state to the trade unions, how he didn't support the British army, how he supported um, bombers and terrorists, all this kind of stuff. All of them run from kind of like dark advertising pages with no explicit connection to the Tory party, pouring hundreds of thousands of pounds into this very explicit and very aggressive a disinformation campaign, which was mostly designed to turn off Corbyn's base and kind of propagate this idea that he is a uniquely evil character in British politics. 
Now, this kind of stuff was very widespread and was very effective. And to be honest with you, I'm somewhat at a loss as to why it was so much more effective in 2019 than it was in 2017. I think it may simply be a matter of resources, as in like how much was going into this. And then also the way that um, this year, you know, broadcasting uh, regulations are meant to mean that the parties get equal coverage time and kind of unbiased opportunities to discuss their policies during the course of an election campaign. And many people in the wake of 2017 attributed our like meteoric rise in the polls to, oh, well, yes, this is when broadcasting regulations kicked in. I mean, this time, to all intents and purposes, broadcasting regulations did not kick in. The BBC acted as a, I mean, it's quite remarkable. A lot of people, you know, if you talk to me two months ago and say, in two months' time, you're going to be paranoidly talking about how the BBC swung the election for the Tories. Uh, I would say that there was absolutely categorically no chance of that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But we saw remarkable things, like a point when um, the BBC's political correspondent, Laura Koonsberg, basically accepted verbatim a lie from uh, a member of the Tory party that Labour activists had assaulted the aid of Matt Hancock, who is a, a Tory MP, at a hospital in Leeds. And this kind of stuff really did reach a fever pitch. And there were all sorts of fake news stories that went out as well. So there's stuff about uh, Jeremy Corbyn supporting, there was an, obviously a horrific terrorist attack at London Bridge during the campaign. Um, and there were, there were immediate rumours um, started by fascists that Jeremy Corbyn had condemned the police for shooting this terrorist dead there was, was also similar tweet, stuff. right they, they doctored a tweet to make it seem yeah. as though uh, corbyn had tweeted out something horrific in that in that regard yeah and then boomers being boomers they just ate it up mm. they believed it all and same thing with the child on the floor of the hospital i mean that was another remarkable story where you know you saw um in black and white kind of the reality of the crisis in the nhs in britain the fact that we now do live in a permanent winter crisis and that nine years of underfunding has destroyed, in many senses, the healthcare service that we used to be so proud of. And just people were not believing that because of this, the state of misinformation. So I, I'm not one to kind of try and overemphasize this stuff. I think that we have to have a broad understanding of politics that includes media as a central factor, but not as like the key causative agent of political change. But there was a huge amount of misinformation, which I think built up, particularly in giving Corbyn this reputation over the course of the campaign and was undoubtedly significant in the result. Yeah, I mean, the, now we it's inevitable. We are, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm fucking, I'm proud of us, Callum. It's 30 minutes in. We're 30 minutes in. And now in, we're going to talk now, about Brexit. We're going to talk about Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> I am, you know, let's, let's, you know, I was a little critical of our boy Lenin, uh, Vladimir. Uh, I'm going to give big ups to Bla- Vlad here and we're going to bend the stick here. In classical <laughs> Leninist fashion. We're going to bend the stick away from the direction of the hot take economy that has proliferated over the past week by foregrounding everything but Brexit before we talk about Brexit so that it can be properly contextualized. And I think that's the real issue now. When you start with Brexit, Brexit is much like Corbyn was in this election. Brexit was a cipher. It's it's the it's the quilting point of a culture war for you Lacanian nerds out there. You all should be very ashamed <laughs> of yourselves for wanting to fuck your mother or whatever it is, right? Uh, but the Lacanians out there will understand the quilt the notion of a quilting point, which is that it it sort of stitches together quite literally. The metaphor is meant to be taken literally. It stitches together the significatory universe, this discursive universe of meaning and signification. And of course, for Lacanians, it goes deep into the, the, the subconscious in ways that I don't understand. We'll have to get Zizek on to talk about this at some point. Uh, probably not. But uh, um, what do you make of the hot take economy that is uh, that has emerged around Brexit? Let's talk about that first, the dominant narrative 
that had Labour gone for a hard Brexit months ago, rather than, quote, triangulating or equivocating or having an unclear policy there that they could have reigned victorious in the election. What do you make of that claim? So in a way, it's almost too early to tell. We're still only just getting in some very initial data sets about what actually happened during the campaign. But I think that there's a couple of things to understand. So as basically the polling shows that we lost about 800,000 Labour Leave voters, right? So people who voted Leave in the referendum and then Labour in the 2017 election, we lost about 800,000 of them. Um, many of them in kind of areas like the, the mythical Midlands, um, also the Northeast, uh, and lots of them went to the Conservatives. Uh, their slogan obviously being, get Brexit done. These voters kind of changed their tribal allegiance. Many of them historically would absolutely not have been Conservative voters, but changed their voting preference over Brexit. But also, I mean, this is the other fact that people are sometimes a little bit more reticent to talk about. We lost 1.1 million Labour Remain voters. So, you know, those are people who voted Labour, voted Remain, and then have now voted for one of the other parties. So the major like Remain parties are the Lib Dems, who said they were going to just unequivocally cancel Brexit, not hold a second referendum, just cancel it, uh, the Green Party and the Scottish Nationalist Party. So we lost huge numbers of voters both ways, right? I think that's really important to understand because a lot of people, if they are, you know, already a pre-existing Remain supporter, they'll just emphasise that we lost 1.1 million people one way. If they're a Leave supporter, they'll do the opposite. But in fact, you know, we really were, But I mean, at the start of the campaign six weeks ago, caught in an almost impossible position. And given where we're at six weeks ago, I think we did broadly as good a job as, as we could have done. Um, and, you know, combined these losses made the defence of Leave seats really difficult but also kind of offensive gains in Remain seats, almost impossible as well. So this led to like just huge wipeouts in areas that 13% of our 2017 vote in the Northeast went. Um, that Now that's not all gone to the Tories. Some of that also went to the Lib Dems, but clearly we got caught on the rocks of Brexit in this election and, and we did get fucked. Um, there's not really any way around that. And in the discussion of things, I think people will quite rightly be critical of the way that we arrived at our Brexit position, which is basically we got spooked by the European elections where lots and lots of people voted for parties like the Lib Dems. I think Labour came in fourth in that election. Um, and basically, we we panicked that we were going to lose all of our Remain supporters and so took this second referendum position. Now, my view on it is basically that had we, in 2017, adopted what's called like a Lexit position, so like a left exit position, if we'd won that position amongst the membership, because it's very important to know 80% of the membership of the Labour Party wanted a second referendum. They were very, they, they are very Remain. Our membership is incredibly Remain. But had we won that Lexit argument at an earlier point of time, I think we could have come through this election in a much better position. But unfortunately, we failed to do that. Um, and, you know, it will go down as a real strategic failure in the long run. But Anyone who tells you that we didn't lose voters both ways or who thinks that this is a very simple question is basically not being critical and not really understanding the fundamental question here, which is that we had a very divided coalition on the issue of Brexit. It played very differently amongst young, metropolitan, like generally high, more highly educated workers and, you know, workers from, from areas like the Northeast. And that regional divide um, really was stark because our coalition came part of the seams in many ways. And a lot of my listeners won't like to hear this. I've cultivated a certain kind of audience, you know, uh, really excited, enthusiastic about a hardcore Marxist approach to this and that and the other. And a lot of people find themselves – I even did shows where I had on uh, 
uh, someone from representing the full Brexit, you know, group. Um, yeah. So I've, I've represented that in a really, I think, faithful way. I, I think, you know, I'm, I was proud of how that episode played out. I myself was far more ambivalent of this kind of what I've now called in a not ambivalent and not very charitable way, Brexit fetishism. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's not <laughs> – I fucked up. I, I, I need a better name because that sounds – it sounds um, uh, horrendously uncharitable. I mean, perhaps it is. But I, what I call Brexit fetishism is this, is this desire to immediately – peg all of these failures and, and distill all of, of these, you know, complex factors into labors and, and particularly Corbyn and leadership's uh, choice of the way that they have pursued Brexit. And I think that completely flattens the history and the, the forces. I mean, look, if you just think that at any given time, in any given historical conjuncture, the people in charge of things or not in charge of things are just free to make the choices however they choose based on their own freedom of their own consciousness or whatever, conscience or whatever then you just fundamentally misunderstand how history develops. And I, it's it's astonishing to me. And again, here I am going even harder in on a, a point that I was trying to be quite charitable about. It's astonishing to me that we have leaned so heavily on the the men, unfortunately, that sexist language, their gendered language, uh, but men making history, ultimately, we've sort of leaning on that without thinking about the conditions not of their own choosing, which is a fundamental tenet of historical materialism. And yet, in my estimation, a lot of people have absolutely forgotten that. And that's not to be apologetic. It's not to apologize or make excuses for, right? In these moments, I, people like myself, whether we're talking about Grexit, whether we're talking about other things, I easily become a, a, I'm a, I become a punching bag, Callum, for these people. <laughs> because it's like, you know, those fucking, that, that, those Adam Proctors and those, yeah, they're fucking apologists, you know? Because I, I want to historicize this thing. I want to understand. I don't want to just, you know, look at an outcome and then blame, you know, find who's to blame and point the fingers. I want to historicize this thing. Sure, choices were made. Some of the choices were good. Some of the choices were bad. Before we assess the choices and figure out how to move forward, we have to understand why the choices were made and what the limitations were, where the contradictions were playing out in ways that, again, conditions not of our own choosing. What were some of those conditions not of Corbin's choosing? Well, I think the first thing is that Corbynism as a movement, for, for a start, in 2016, when the, when the referendum was held, we were not well organised and the left was kind of like forced into taking a position almost by accident. I think the predominant left position ended up being Remain because Leave was being pushed by very serious ethno-nationalists. And when um, Joe Cox, who was a Labour MP, was murdered by a fascist terrorist, I think people took fright at what the campaign was unleashing and decided to go for kind of a defensive remain. And, you know, I voted remain. That was that was where we ended up. Um, it was never really a calculated strategic question. I don't think at the time the British left really understood how much Brexit would define the coming political um, kind of conjuncture. And so we all kind of voted out of this kind of generic social liberalism, which absolutely should be defended, you know, this kind of anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti-homophobia, anti-xenophobia, um, and opposing the kind of unleashing of these things that, that Brexit appeared to be. But it wasn't a long-term strategic choice, and it wasn't based on a serious analysis of the EU. I think probably if you ask British leftists at the time, no one had ever read a book on the EU. <laughs> it was not a thing that we had, like, a, or many of us had a serious um, long-term strategic perspective on. And so the left has always kind of been struggling to play catch-up ever since. Now, Remainers have tended to be better organised within the Labour Party. So you've got organisations like Another Europe is Possible or whatever, and have pushed very, very hard from the start. 
um, for Labour to adopt a second referendum position, the position that we entered this election with. And they were helped by the fact that a large part of our um, base is obviously young. Now, young people, because of this association between Remain and social liberalism, tend to be like overwhelmingly Remain voters and overwhelmingly Remain supporters. Um, and also based in major cities, which again were overwhelmingly Remain. I mean, the, the city I'm speaking from right now, Brighton, is one of the most Remain cities in the UK and is also you know, known for its social liberalism and, and being LGBT friendly and the like. And that's where our base was concentrated. And then actually, you know, historic Labour voters, working class voters outside of the major cities, mostly older, who voted leave, that was a really significant proportion of the party's base. But they were not well organised within the party. There was no coherent lexic campaign really within the party. I mean, there have been attempts, but not a really serious campaign in the sense that another Europe is possible and, and affiliated organisations have, have been really serious. So there is a problem, I think, with the way that the party was set up and Corbyn was under kind of asymmetric pressure um, because, you know, he is a he is a lever himself. Like he was a Benite back in the day, kind of a follower of Tony Benn, and Tony Benn was highly, highly critical of the EU. So I, I think that we were bounced into a position and then our membership base was asymmetrically representative of our voting coalition and he was put under a huge amount of pressure and the people around him were put out under a huge amount of pressure as a result. And I think that in general, a lot of people, because Brexit doesn't necessarily break left-right, a lot of socialists within the party did not want to focus on Brexit. You know, certainly I didn't focus on Brexit. I was focused on, you know, over the last two years, having making this argument about the need to reorganise a working class base at the rank and file. Um, and so really, we ended up taking this position out of almost a kind of exhaustion on both sides, and then finally superior forces winning out. And I, I think it, it was a negative decision in retrospect. I think that very few people in the party would say that this second referendum position has worked out well, or that we would do it again. But I can understand in some ways how the leadership kind of got bounced into it over a long period of time. Um, and that's that's not to say that, you know, either side is categorically right in retrospect, but it is to say that this was a really difficult, a difficult question for us because it was a strategic problem of the right's design. And in many ways, we've ended up dancing to their tune for, for exactly. near on three years now. That's, that's exactly the, the point of my next question, provocation. You know, so the, the, the claim. And it's what I'm sympathetic to it, right? I mean, I want to believe that it's true. I think that it offers a, a nice, a nice balm in, 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 a, in a moment of, of collective trauma, right? You know, it's like a, it's like a stiff drink after a hard day to repeat the mantra that, you know, Brexit would have won. Brexit would have won. If only we could have, you know, pushed a hard Brexit inside the party, we would have won. Is Brexit overdetermined, as I suspect, and you just sort of insinuated, is Brexit overdetermined? to use the stuffy language of, you know, uh, French structuralism, is, Bre is Brexit overdetermined by the discursive universe of right-wing populism? Is that a discourse? Is that a, a, a yeah. rhetoric? Is that a strategy that can be easily plugged into by the principled left? Because that seems to be the question that's at stake. On the one hand, there's no doubt that it is absolutely true that people in the center left smear the levers as a bunch of racists. Some people even went so far as to calling them Nazis. That's unequivocally false and, and, and just strategically stupid, right? To put it lightly. So we want to go that far. But is it the case that, as you said, we're dancing to the right's tune, no matter what position we stake out of Brexit? Yeah, I mean, so 
I think it's very hard to know this definitively one way or the other. Um, the argument I've made over Brexit consistently is that we shouldn't be saying, uh, we should absolutely not be saying that Brexit was necessarily a racist or a uh, or a fascist endeavour, rather. Like, Brexit is not necessarily fascist in any way, and the affiliation of street movements in favour of Brexit and fascism has been a really damaging move made by some in broadly the liberal, the kind of the liberal left. That said, there are certainly difficulties with attempting to use a terrain that, you know, the right has been talking about leaving the EU since I can remember. I mean, ever since Thatcher started being critical of the EU, they have been, there's been a a kind of a hardcore of the right that's been planning this anti-Europeanism as a way of deregulating our economy and uh, kind of having a a uh, pro-nationalist break from these, these super national institutions. And they were strategically way more prepared for the issue than we were. That's why, in the end, you know, they were able to force a referendum to break their own party in many ways. But now they've broken their party. They are reassembling it in the form of a Brexit party. So this has allowed the right, the hard right, to recompose the Tory party and to recompose national politics in their image. And they've won a landslide victory out of it. So it is their strategic initiative. Whether we could have counterattacked better is, I think, an open question. I personally, if I could go back in time and change the way I've done politics for the last few years, would have put much more effort into attempting to formulate a coherent series of Lexit positions. Uh, because I think that there is, you know, you can have Brexit plus the free movement of people. That's not, not necessarily, the two are not contradictory, right? This notion that Brexit means taking back control of our immigration system and have an Australian-style point system and an extremely draconian border regime and detention camps does not necessarily have to be true. There are other visions of Brexit available. But I don't think we ever put enough resource, time or thought into it to actually make that strategically viable. So, I mean, really, this is a question of like, when confronted with a left-right, an issue that didn't break left-right, we didn't put sufficient work into attempting to come up with a left-wing articulation of that kind of dividing line. And that that meant that the right capitalised on it. And, you know, I may think differently about this when the depression of the defeat has worn off a bit, but I, I do think there's been a significant failure on that front. Is it the case then? Because this is that. I mean, I'll 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 uh, co-sign that. Is it the case then? However, though, that the hard Brexiters, the hard Lexiters, have been right all along. Is the strategy mm-hmm. that they've laid the, anal- <laughs> the analysis right? Because you, what you've just said there, I'll have some listeners and some people who are probably quite angry with me right now. That's fine. I, it is what it is. I do make my living off this podcast, so I, I ask your forgiveness, dear listener. But uh, people are quite angry with me. Will listen to what you've just said and see. Aha. So we've been right all along, all along. The hard lexiteers, the people who have been lambasting Corbyn and the Corbynites and spewing venom from all pores of their body around the, you know, the the metropolitan Corbynites, yadi, the the identitarians who are doing, you know, just not even remotely capturing exactly what's going on there. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. But we're the hard lexiters right all along. Is this their final vindication? No. Uh, because it depends on what you depends on what you mean by a hard lexter, I suppose. But I think a lot of people. I mean, if you saw Brexit as a kind of a working class revolt, um, it wasn't a working class revolt. If you look at the vote, um, the categorically, the working class was split on this issue. That's why it doesn't break left right. You know, it's a a profoundly divisive issue that we had to navigate carefully collectively. And I think that um, a lot of the early um, attempts to argue for Lexit maybe necessarily didn't do that. I think the real failure for them 
uh, not saying that, you know, just on an objective level is they never really organized within the party in any effective and sustained way. So whilst, yes, you had organizations, I've talked about them in other Europe is possible or whatever, labor for people to vote, where the right and the center of the party and parts of the left of the party, often the Trotskyist left, um, were organizing for, you know, that outcome. Uh, they never really organized within the party for their desired outcome. I think that's in the long run, they made tactical errors, even whilst they might have had a strategic perception um, of what was to come. And I think that, you know, you've got to have tactics and strategy. It can't be one or the other. And there's a there's a failure by everyone on this front, I think. And that's what's I mean, so I'm frustrating. Really, uh, that's what's so frustrating about some of these these folks. And I'm, I'm sympathetic to, you know, their, their argu- many of their arguments. Like I said, I've had many of them on my show. I suspect that I will have some of them back on in, in the coming months to sort of hash this out collectively. I've had some heated but comradely exchanges with friends and acquaintances and comrades of mine about this on Twitter and online. I don't, I don't suggest that anyone engage in that sort of thing. Uh do do as I say, not as I do. As but moving <laughs> on, um, you know. But but the but you're right. And what was so frustrating about this is there's a kernel of truth there, and there's a there's a real nugget to hold on to for, for the left. But what you saw in their behavior very much mirrored what we saw following the the Greek tragedy, the Grexit debacle. And I don't know what your take is on that, or if you have one. We don't need to go back and rehash that. But it, the the similarities are stark. And so far as you have this hard Grexit left. Uh, which is largely operating outside of the structures of of Syriza, so I'm told. Uh, even some of them were were standing as MPs, but nonetheless, they they weren't at meetings. They weren't inside the the sort of they were they were at. I mean, let's be honest about where they were. Okay, <laughs> they were at academic conferences in Australia in the United Kingdom. Okay, talking about this stuff. Uh, mo- many, if not most, of them were not actually in Greece uh, proper doing this stuff. And so, and then of course, Syriza tanks. Following the Greek tragedy, they sort of take their toys, take their ball, and go home. And I'm afraid we're going to see a similar dynamic here inside the Labour Party uh, in, in in Britain. Do you, do you see that taking shape? A lot of people are ready to take their ball and go home, and perhaps dissolve into these sects that have you know plagued the left over the past several several generations. No, I'm actually quite hopeful on that front. I don't I don't think that will happen. I think um, you know. Lexic comrades, I'm going to go drinking with them in a couple of days' time. It's not, it's not that deep, and they will, um, you know, we'll be able to go to the pub and have a, a civil discussion. And it's, they'll remain in the party. You know, we're all unified in the party at the moment, and that's probably the most remarkable thing about the election campaign for me was you were just looking around and you just saw everyone you knew from the, you know, last seven years of struggle had somehow found their way into this massive campaigning organisation and they were all knocking doors for the same end. I think this is a really important thing not to forget about this campaign is it, it was a movement and it was a large movement. We might have been fighting with not great messaging on bad terrain in a difficult situation, but there was a serious movement here and we are all united in that. Um, and so whilst, you know, there are people flying left and right on Twitter at the moment. It's not necessarily, I don't think, deep enough to entail any long-lasting splits or failures because fundamentally, I think the question has been taken out of our hands now. You know, like Brexit is going to be done. Uh, It's not going to be controlled by us. It will probably lead to us eating all the shit that you lot eat every day. Mm. You know, chlorinated chicken and and maggots and cheese or whatever it is. Um, You know, I'm looking forward to the mass importation of Philadelphia cheesesteaks in like containers just ready for us. Oh, but that's a delicacy, you see. Is that a good thing? You just haven't learned that yet. You just haven't Uh, learned it. You haven't learned to to eat your shit with a smile on your face. (laughs) No, but I I think that, um, 
you know, Brexit's out of our hands. It's going to be a fire sale. The NHS may well be imperiled by it. It's going to be a very difficult period. Um, but that question is ultimately being politically resolved by the, the, the victory of the right. Um, so now the question is, how do we go forward from here? And how do we start rebuilding towards a counterattack at some point in the future? And I actually think across what you may think of uh, Brexit, there's a broad agreement on the need to rebuild a base through uh, the kind of engagement with the workers' movement in the classical sense, the engagement with people in their workplaces and communities over bread and butter issues, and the politicisation of those issues and agitating in those communities is how we're going to go forward uh, to the next Labour government. And because I don't think we're going to lose the leadership election, I think that that Labour Party will continue articulating the same radical break with um, kind of ongoing neoliberalism as it always has done. And when the contradictions of the Johnson project start to play out, be that in attempts to repress industrial action, be that in assaults on the traveller community, be that in crises in public services, be that in the kind of impact of the climate crisis, we will be, I think, more prepared and unified to take that on now than we have been um, over the last couple of years. Because fundamentally, like I was saying, a lot of the people who went through 2017 are now going to learn what it's like to be in opposition to a Tory majority. And Britain's constitutional system, when you've got a majority government, you've kind of got a dictatorship for the next five years, right? Especially if you've got a majority of 60-odd seats, uh, as they do at the moment. So the Tory party is going to be going ham on our trade unions. It's going to be uh, messing things up left, right and centre, there will be a lot of struggles to come. And I think we'll find our unity in those struggles. Yeah, I think that's right. That's a very refreshing message coming out from what's been a, a heated and often uh, sectarian terrain of, of debate here over the past week or so. Let's finish up. We've talked about the immediate present of the Labour Party. Well, what are the immediate battles that are already underway, whether we know it or not, in terms of the you know the, the Labour Party leadership, what's going on on the left, on the ground, how do we recoup? We've obviously now talked about Brexit. Finally, we've got that monkey off our back. Let's let's final question here, final provocation, final topic. I've got to let you go. This is going along a little bit, but I would be remiss if I didn't if I had Callum Kent on the on the on the call and didn't ask him about the shifts in class composition in that society because that's really kind of your your jam that's your wheelhouse your book writing for Deliveroo resistance in the new economy out from polity press 2019 people should pick up that copy you know that really touches on that this this reconfiguration of the working class and this is something that people in every country my 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 US listeners my canadian listeners my danish listeners they will be familiar with these shifts in the class composition how did this play out a lot of people have noted that despite the losses in labor seats and the so-called in the mythical Midlands now, you saw some gains in metropolitan areas overtaking, you know, long-held Tory strongholds. What do you make of that shift in, in class composition? And how did we see that play out in the election? And how will that look moving forward in your strategies that, that you're sort of hashing out? Okay, so I think the interesting thing here is in the data we've been getting back from kind of early polling and early data on how the election looked, despite the fact that we lost 3 million votes, and as we've discussed, we lost some of them leave, some of them remain, the class composition of the Labour vote is actually remarkably similar. So if you line up who voted, or you know, what uh, occupational roles, what housing status um, did people have in 2017 and 2019 when they voted for Labour and when they voted for the Tories? Labour is still the party of employees. It's still the party of the unemployed, the disabled, students, people who rent. You know, that is still our class base. And the Tories are still the party of the retired managers and people who own their homes outright. You know, the, the fundamental class distinction between Labour and the Tories, if not remaining identical, 
and you know there are certainly local variations on this in places like Blackpool or whatever, um, is broadly similar. Right, so it's not like the Labour Party has completely lost its connection to the working class. It's more like a lot of the people who make up our coalition um, just didn't turn out. Right, that's really the problem. Um, so we are, I think, as time goes on, it's going to become more obvious that there is a severe problem with turnout amongst Labour voters, and that's really how we lost this election um, alongside the divides over Brexit and things that we talked about. But there is no mass working class abandonment of the Labour Party, and that's important, I think, because. Um, in the UK now, we're obviously seeing we lost uh, most of our manufacturing a long time ago, but we are seeing the challenges of like, how do we organise people, um, both, you know, politically, how do we get people to vote Labour, but how do we organise them into trade unions in places like distribution centres, Amazon warehouses, a lot of the service economy. Um, you know, really, in the UK, our trade union movement reached its its highest point of strength in 1979. Um, when you have a thing called the winter of discontent, where something like 18% of the entire economically active population of the UK went on strike at some point in that year. Now, that high point, since then, we've basically failed to organise new industries. So places like call centres, right? Call centres in the UK come in about the mid-90s in the banking sector. Um, in parts of um, the, the mythical northeast, they are still, you know, major, major employers. So there'll be towns near Newcastle where you, you know, everyone in the town basically works in one of a series of different call centres. Now, in places like that, the fact that we've never managed to organise those workplaces is a large part of why our base has weakened and why we've lost our connection to those communities and why those communities don't necessarily see their interests in socialist politics anymore. And so really the challenge ahead of us is how do we rebuild in those greenfield sites, those places where the movement has been smashed and in retreat for decades, literally decades. Um, and really that, that challenge ahead of us is one that requires serious analysis and also, you know, going and doing the hard work in workplaces and, and talking to workers. Um, so, you know, in the US, have you read, uh, there's a great Kim Moody book on new terrain, which I can't recommend enough if people are interested in the labor movement. Um, I, I think that it's that kind of analysis of, where are workers now? Where are they concentrated? And what strategies can we use to reach out to them and organise them on economic questions that will allow us to then agitate on political questions in the longer term? And this is where base rebuilding is really so core, I think, to the new strategic consensus emerging in the Labour Party. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, there's there's a, tr- a profound, fundamental uh, transformation undergoing in our, our class composition from traditional you know the way you know the traditional when you under a microscope the traditional is never really that traditional either is it? Yeah, it's always yeah, far yeah. more fragmented it's always <laughs> far less predictable it fits in far fewer neat boxes than you know we like to put it in but again uh, there are profound uh, transformations and i think you know take heart you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of the numbers here in closing up this and wrapping up this conversation. Um, people should check out your book, Writing for Deliveroo. I don't mean to cut that conversation short, but we're going long here. But take heart in the fact, right? I mean, you know, sure. Uh, Labor lost 60 some odd seats, 60 seats, actually. And the Tories gained 48. They have a, a, a stunning majority that's going to carry them into the next five years, uh, barring a profound crisis, which we could see, right? Uh, recession yeah, is yeah, coming. completely. Uh, the problems that Corbyn campaigned on are not going away anytime soon. So we'll see how that shakes out. But let's look at this new ma- – I mean you'd say there's a profound labor defeat. Let's break down the numbers though. I know this seems like a, a, a cop-out. But the, the, the numbers, the popular vote 
Okay. We still have 10 million voters voting for socialism. 10.2 <laughs> million votes for socialism. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, eh? 10.2 million votes for socialism to uh, just under 14 million votes for the Tories, which are a highly fragmented ide- ideological political formation right now. And so, I mean, you know, it's it's gloom and doom for sure. And the consequences will be stark for a lot of people out there. And we shouldn't, uh, you know, try to paper over that. But at the same time, you know, now is not the time to hang your heads, comrades. We're building on this thing. The you know, people like yourself, I mean, let's give you some credit here. You are among the generation of people who are just uh, heads and tails above prior generations. I mean, we like to lionize, again, tradition being, you know, tradition is not always as good as it seemed, but we, we, a lot of those people deserve a lot of credit. You know, the proud sort of labor left tradition coming out of the 60s and 70s. You think about the, the legends like Tony Benn and others. But people like yourself are far ahead of the game, particularly as, as young as you are. And uh, I'll speak for you. Now, I'm, I'm getting less young by the day. Uh, but uh, people of your generation and our generation coming up are far more sophisticated when it comes to addressing these questions and thinking, uh, charting a, a way forward than in, in, in previous generations. We should really take heart over this. Any parting words of optimism for the listeners in terms of how we go forward? I mean, I think you've just got to remember Rosa Luxemburg, order reigns in Berlin, right? The revolution will rise up again, clashing its arms and say, I was, I am, I shall be. That's always my go-to when I'm feeling a little bit down. Yeah, well, that, no better way to, to wrap up there. Uh, Callum Can, thanks so much for joining us on DPS. I'd like to have you back on in the coming months and years here to assess how this how these things are going. Everybody pick up. I'm going to go ahead and pitch your book for you. Everybody pick up that book, Writing for Deliveroo. Um, it really assesses a lot of the fundamental transformations in our in political economy. And many of you yourselves will find your own stories, I'm sure, reflected back at you in, on those pages. Uh, we are all uh, you know, slaves to the gig economy in some way or, or another. We're either wrapped up in these personal branding games or stuck in the gig economy or running on one of these newfound, newfangled treadmills of labor exploitation uh, that, are, that are quickly uh, speeding up all around us. So, Callum, thanks so much for coming with DPS. Thank you so much for having me.